0: not meant to do all the things all the time by ourselves as humans, right? That's why on a team, you want to have different skill sets, different strengths. Some people that are great at project management, great at execution, other people that are really good at relationship building or idea generation. We need all types of human intelligence, all types of skill sets to come together to make a strong team. Having different people with different skill sets makes us stronger.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the new rules of business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers.
2: And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And we are the co-founders of Chief, the most powerful community of senior executive women.
1: On this podcast, we challenge preconceived notions of
2: leadership. And this week, we are unpacking neurodiversity. I know this is actually a topic that's very personal to you, Lindsay. Yeah, I was diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago, and it was a huge unlock as I realized that I wasn't weird. My brain actually fires completely differently, and it helped me grow as a leader, as you know, because you work with me day to day. Well, I thank
1: you for sharing here and for sharing that journey with me over the last few years. And you know that studies show that one in five people are neurodivergent, and this could mean they have ADHD. Autism, dyslexia, traumatic brain injury, the list
2: goes on. Yeah, and workplaces can be a huge source of stress and emotional fatigue for everyone, but can be particularly triggering for neurodiverse individuals.
1: So how can we, as leaders, set everyone up for success?
2: And if you are a leader like me, who has a brain that functions and fires differently than the norm, how can we lead effectively?
1: Margot Jaffe joins us to explain— She was diagnosed with ADHD in her later 20s, and at the time she saw very few examples of professional women with ADHD. So she started the Kaleidoscope Society, a community to share resources and support. She is a community builder
2: just like us. So with that, let's get into the conversation. I'm thrilled to be sitting down with Margot Joffe. She is a neurodiversity advocate working to create a more accessible and inclusive world. She created the Kaleidoscope Society, an online community for women with ADHD, and has worked with organizations such as the United Nations, Nike, GitHub, and Yahoo as an experienced disability inclusion consultant. Margo, I am so excited you're here because this is personal for me, and I'm excited to cover the topic.
0: Thanks for having me, Lindsay. And I am always excited when I get to talk with neurodivergent folks.
2: Me too. My fear is always, though, I'm just going to cut everybody off. So you have the ability now, because we have two ADHD people in the room, to just cut each
0: other off with ease. Yes, I welcome you to cut me off, jump in, add tangential stories. I welcome it all. Oh, she knows all
2: my tricks so to take a step back for those who aren't familiar with that bigger term what is neurodiversity how do we define that these days
0: it basically means brain differences that in our population in our human species we have all types of minds this is an essential part of human diversity the term neurodivergence refers to any type of brain variation outside of what society would consider to be quote, the norm. So different brain wiring might look like ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, autism, dyslexia, Tourette's, epilepsy, or other conditions. In addition, folks who live with chronic mental health conditions like anxiety or depression may also choose to identify as neurodivergent. How many people identify as neurodiverse? Well, I don't know that we have data on (laughs) how many people self-identify with that label per se, but it is estimated that around 15 to 20% of the world's population, basically one in five people are neurodivergent, meaning that they may think, learn, communicate, interact socially differently than what is considered quote unquote typical by society. You yourself received
2: a diagnosis of ADHD that was life changing at age 29. So, how did realizing that you had ADHD change how you approached your life and your career and work?
0: I am really thankful that I did finally get diagnosed with ADHD almost 10 years ago. I started struggling with my mental health in my teenage years. And when I was 18, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but it was more than a decade later that I finally got an accurate diagnosis of ADHD. And it really did change how I have approached my life because it opened the door for a whole new level of self awareness, self acceptance, and simply giving myself permission to do things a little differently in order to support myself. It took me several years to really process my diagnosis and accept myself deeply because we, most of us have a lot of internalized ableism just that permeates throughout our culture. And so there was a lot of things that I did that I thought it was because I was just being lazy or I wasn't good enough, or there was something intrinsically wrong with who I was. And when I started learning about ADHD and some of the executive functioning impairments that can come with it, I started to realize that, well, ADHD can cause challenges with things like organization, memory, planning, prioritizing, emotional regulation, there's things that we can do to support ourselves. The real problem is that most of us were never taught how to work with our unique brain wiring. So once we can accept that our brain is wired differently and there's certain tendencies and challenges we might experience then we are in a position where we can start to design our life in a way that's going to support us. That resonates with me a lot
2: because I was diagnosed about two years ago and it felt like this massive unlock. And I joke that on one hand, there were all of these quirks and things that I found unique about myself that suddenly were accounted for with one quick diagnosis. But on the other hand, it also felt like I too, in my teenage years, had been diagnosed with depression, that I too felt like I was wired differently. And suddenly, everything started to make sense. That checklist of things that ADHD people typically do, I checked off nearly every box. And I want to zero in on something you said about executive functioning, because I am an executive. And yet, when we think about the definition of ADHD, it is an executive functioning disorder. Can you help define some of that?
0: First, let's define executive functions. So executive functions are mental processes that happen in our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that is right behind our forehead. It's kind of thought of as like the CEO of the brain, or you could think about it as your executive assistant. This part of your brain is in charge of prioritizing, planning, organizing, task activation, so helping you get started on tasks, helping you monitor your behaviors, helping you switch attention if you're switching attention from one task to the other, things like that. Everyone with ADHD is different. So some people may struggle with some of these things differently than others, but executive functions are commonly impaired with several conditions, including ADHD, dyslexia, autism, long COVID, traumatic brain injuries. So if somebody you know, was recently in a car accident and had a concussion, they may have impact on their executive functioning skills.
2: And I know that women, myself included, are less likely to be diagnosed at a younger age with ADHD. We think about it as the boys in our class who can't sit still and are running around and maybe causing trouble, what contributes to this gendering of ADHD? And what unique challenges do girls and women face?
0: It's a great question. So there's a few things. One of the main things is medical bias in the diagnostic criteria. So a lot of the studies that happened in the 70s to inform the diagnostic criteria for ADHD were done with teenage boys, mainly white teenage boys. The research was not done inclusively, basically. So then you see that girls and women have typically gone undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And now that's changing slowly. There's more research being done to better understand how ADHD presents in girls and women. Another factor is that, you know, there's three subtypes of ADHD. So there's the inattentive subtype, the hyperactive impulsive subtype, and then the combined subtype. Girls and women are more likely to be diagnosed with the inattentive subtype, which means they may present in a way that's more daydreamy, spacing out, really struggling more so with organization and planning and things like that. And so they may not be as physically or outwardly hyperactive. And so... That's why a lot of times in school, they're missed more easily or not spotted. That makes sense. I also think the definition of
2: hyperactivity, that shows up differently in women because I am known to my family as I can be the laziest person and yet my brain's always working and I'm always fidgeting and I always need to be doing three things at once. And that's the hyperactivity that we don't necessarily think of when we think about ADHD. So we'd love to learn more about the Kaleidoscope Society that you founded in order to address the need for accessible resources and dispelling some of these stigmas around ADHD.
0: Yeah, well really when I was diagnosed with ADHD almost 10 years ago now, you know, I went on to Google to understand what is ADHD and specifically in women. And I was really surprised at the lack of resources and role models. I remember when I I went to therapy for the first time after getting diagnosed and my therapist gave me a little PowerPoint about ADHD. And on one slide, it was like famous people with ADHD, but it was basically all men, all white men as well. And I was like, where's the women? (laughs) (laughs) And so I started to see that there was just such a gap in resources for adult women with ADHD. And at the time, I remember I went on Instagram, and there was two posts with the hashtag ADHD women, literally two posts. And I was just so surprised. So after a while, I started thinking, what can I do to make a difference in this area? And I started seeking out and interviewing with women with ADHD across the country to better understand the lived experiences of others like me. And it was such an instrumental part of my own healing journey, finding community, being in community with other professional women with ADHD and really helped forge my own path to self-acceptance. And I thought, okay, let's create a platform for women with ADHD. And that's how Kaleidoscope Society was born, really with the goal of dispelling stigma, creating awareness through shining a light on the diverse lived experiences of women with ADHD, and then collaborating with leading experts to curate expert advice that was specifically tailored for adult women. And it's been an amazing journey. And now there's millions of videos on TikTok (laughs) about ADHD and women. And I'm so glad to see that there's a lot more conversation happening now. Yeah, thank you for contributing to that and for being at the forefront.
2: What has been one of your biggest learnings in forming the Kaleidoscope Society?
0: I think one of the biggest learnings is the importance and power of peer support. For too long, like we live in a society where disability and difference is seen as something that needs to be cured or fixed. There is nothing that we need to fix about ourselves. We have a different brain wiring. So The sooner we can accept ourselves, the sooner that we can live with greater ease, with better well-being, and prevent some of the negative outcomes that way too many neurodivergent people face. What keeps me up at night? Suicide is a big issue in the neurodivergent community, especially neurodivergent women. One in four women with ADHD have attempted to kill themselves This is an urgent, urgent public health issue. Autistic women, especially, are 13 times more likely to die by suicide. Wow. It's crucial that we increase understanding and support so that we can change those statistics.
2: The workplace can negatively affect people who are neurodivergent Is that something that we can work on and fix? And what's the best way forward for us leaders who want to make sure we are building better workplaces for neurodivergent folks?
0: Yes, it's absolutely something we can work on. Where we are today, we know that there's a lot of barriers in the workplace. There's that 85% of autistic workers are underemployed or unemployed. Workers with ADHD are 60% more likely to be fired from their jobs. So there's a lot of challenges. One of the main barriers that we can work on reducing is around stigma. People are afraid to disclose. And we know that most employees with disabilities in general do not disclose that they have a disability through the self-ID process. And there was a study published this year in HR Magazine that About a third of neurodivergent staff say that they had not been able to disclose their condition. And so what that means is that you have folks who are covering, who might be masking, maybe they feel like they can't be themselves. Uh, And it also means that they're not able to have conversations with their manager to be able to get simple supports or simple adjustments that really may be able to make a difference for them in terms of their performance and their success in their role. Can you define masking for those of us who don't know? Yeah. So masking, just like if you put on a mask, right? It's like you're changing your behavior to appear or present in another way. So masking is where you're changing your appearance, changing your behavior, changing the way you communicate to fit in. And a lot of people do this, right? On for many different reasons at work and this takes a huge toll it's a huge energy drain so this could look like faking eye contact it could look like restricting stimming or fidgeting it could look like just spending so much energy in worrying about how you are appearing rather than just being able to focus that energy on doing your job so it's just a lot of energy to fit in that can be exhausting, that can lead to burnout and deep, deep fatigue. Yeah, well, if you see me in a meeting and I'm not fidgeting,
2: chances are I am masking because I cannot sit still. <laughs> what steps can CEOs and C-suite leaders take to promote diversity
0: and to bring more acceptance? I think the first step is recognizing that one in five people, one in five of your employees and one in five of your customers likely could be neurodivergent and understanding that it's a business priority to make sure that your workplaces and your products and services are inclusive. Otherwise, you're missing out on a huge segment of talent and customers. And understanding there is a skills gap. right? So we know that most HR folks and people managers are wondering how they can be more inclusive. So leaders can empower their HR folks and people managers with neurodiversity awareness and training so that they can have the skills that they need to be more inclusive leaders. When we do include neurodiverse people, what
2: superpowers have you seen them bring to the table? What strengths do neurodivergent and particularly ADHD individuals bring to the workplace?
0: I love that you asked this question because it's so important to take a strength-based approach and understanding that while there are challenges that come with having different brain wiring, so to speak, there's also on the flip side of that coin, so many strengths, right? So Every trait in the right context can be a strength. So I would say with ADHD, understanding that number one, when we think about attention, it's not always a lack of attention. It's sometimes we have challenges with regulating our attention. But what that means is when someone with ADHD is interested about something, passionate about something, they can actually hyperfocus. So hyperfocus is one strength. Creativity is another common strength with ADHD. Out-of-the-box thinking, being able to make connections that other people miss. Many different creative business leaders have ADHD. Empathy and a strong sense of justice, social justice, is another thing we commonly see in people with ADHD, as well as humor and amazing problem-solving abilities. So there, there's many strengths, but those are a few common ones that we see. Marco, I feel like you just listed off all of my best traits. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised because you're a founder, you're a creative leader, and we see so many successful creative business leaders with ADHD because they're empathetic, they're making the connections that other people miss, they have amazing positive energy and high energy in general, and curiosity, curiosity to seek out and learn about the people in the world around them. And those are traits that we see in a lot of effective leaders. I love it.
2: So I always feel like I have a privilege of, as a co-founder, just being very clear, I have ADHD. This is who I am here are all my superpowers, I'm never going to be very organized, and I'm never going to be the best note taker in the room. What can I do? What is my responsibility as a role model that I have for others? How can I pave the way and be my most authentic self?
0: Mm, That's such a beautiful question. And I think that's a great thing for all ADHDers to think about. Understanding ADHD, it's not an excuse, it's an explanation. And understanding that we're always at any moment in relationship with people around us, whether it's our coworkers, our friends, our families. So having the self-awareness of how we're showing up and understanding that how that may be impacting people. But I think one of the things we can do to be role models is identify what we need and then learn how to communicate our needs with confidence and with respect for other people. Let's see, if somebody struggles with note-taking, just for your example, right? Understanding, okay, I'm not the best note-taker, so either I can bring in a technology to support me, maybe like a voice-to-text software that can automate the note-taking for me so that I'm not taking the notes. And there's many different AI based tools for that now, which makes things really easy. Or see if anyone else wants to be the note-taker, but just owning that up front. Or if you need support with project management or making a schedule for something, communicating that and seeing who can help you with it. Mm,
2: My secret is I married a project manager. That's amazing or else I would never survive
0: work and motherhood. And see, that's such a great example of interdependence. We're not meant to do all the things all the time by ourselves as humans, right? That's why on a team, you want to have different skill sets, different strengths. Some people that are great at project management, great at execution, other people that are really good at relationship building or idea generation. We need all types of human intelligence, all types of skill sets to come together to make a strong team. Having different people with different skill sets makes us stronger.
2: Agree. My co-founder also is great at organizing and has high executive function capabilities. So I'm surrounding myself with people who are better at those things than me, so I can lean into what I love to do and what I'm great at doing. We are called the new rules of business. So if you could write a new rule of business to embrace neurodiversity at work, what would your new
0: rule be? So my new rule would be that accessibility needs to be a requirement for all businesses. Because you think about one in five of your employees and your customers are neurodivergent. So it's time for all businesses to be asking themselves, What are you doing to include and support these people? And with disability as a whole, it's not a niche issue. One in three of U.S. households have at least one family member with a disability. So the new rule for business, it shouldn't even be a new rule. It should have been the rule. (laughs) But if your business is not thinking about accessibility, it's definitely time to be prioritizing it.
2: Let's codify that. All right. And to wrap up. What is the best or worst piece of leadership advice you've ever received?
0: Oh, man. See, these kind of questions, I think, are the tough ones for neurodivergent people. Because
2: you probably have a library of thousands of crappy pieces of leadership advice.
0: Yes. One of my first bosses told me a piece of advice I'll never forget. She said, feedback is a reflection of the person that is giving the feedback. Mm. For all of us, especially neurodivergent folks who might be more sensitive to getting feedback, if we can reframe it and think about it can be a gateway to better understanding the person on the other end who's giving you the feedback and not taking it personally. I love it. We take
2: feedback so seriously. And often the person who's giving the feedback just went through 17 meetings and is not necessarily thinking about you. They're thinking through a filter of them before they get to you. So I think that is great advice. Margo, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved this conversation. I loved that we didn't interrupt each other that much. And it's just, it's fantastic to talk about ADHD and to make sure neurodiversity is a topic that we can continue to support, continue to advocate for, and continue to shine a light on for everybody, for that 20% of people among us, whether they know it or not.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Margot Jaffe, founder of
2: the Kaleidoscope Society and a disability inclusion consultant. Well, you know I love how she reframed neurodiversity as strengths and encouraged acceptance. Because yes, our brains are wired differently. And yes, you bet your butt that I am fidgeting in my seat at this exact moment. But it's not a liability. To me, it's a huge asset. Strong teams always have different skills and strengths. And it's probably why you and I work so well together, Cece. I am like the
1: organized bento box and you are like the bowl of sangria.
2: (laughs) Bowl of sangria, hot steaming vat of chili. You are definitely organized and I am a creative whirlwind. (laughs)
1: Well, if you're an executive who wants to ensure that you're building an inclusive culture for everyone, ask your employees what they need to be successful and continuously create space for them to speak up.
2: And if you are neurodiverse, I hope you're not afraid to identify what you need and ask for it, whether that's AI software to help with note-taking, which I rely on a lot, support with project management, which I rely on Carolyn a lot, or just help with making a schedule.
1: Well, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit, Lindsay. As an executive with an executive functioning disorder, how do you lean
2: into your strengths
1: on the day-to-day?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really transparent that I'm not a skilled project manager. And I've built up my personal brand as a creative, as a disruptive thinker. And so my goal is always to surround myself with amazing colleagues who bring their strengths to the table and can support me and mine throughout the day, but for the strength of the business in general.
1: Well, I know a lot of our listeners will find your tips helpful. And that's a wrap for this episode because I got to go get myself a glass of sangria.
2: I'm pouring you one right now. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following the new rules of business on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to learn more about Chief, just head to our website, chief.com.
1: Chief is the most powerful community for senior executive women designed to create meaningful connections with fellow executive leaders that will unlock transformative outcomes for your career. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, and Mesa Melton at Chief, and to our entire production team, Pod People. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn
2: Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks again for listening.